Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the HVMN Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. And today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Joel Kahn. You might have seen him in the Twitter nutrition podcast circuit. Uh, it's been a crazy, rambunctious community in that sphere of discussion. And really great to have you on the program. I know you have a background in cardiology, but also a special interest in plant-based nutrition. Welcome on to the Health Via Modern Nutrition program. Baby, I'm just here to get a few free samples of my uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate liquid. <laughs> and I do remember when that hit the media and the science world. I mean, I was pretty excited about it. I, we're, we're, this is going to be a great discussion, but I'm looking forward to it, too. Awesome. So for folks who've been following the program for a long time, we've had a lot of the carnivore perspective on, I know we were on the, before the program, a lot of mutual friends, actually, you know, Dr. Sean Baker, who's uh, a, a pretty aggressive carnivore in, in, in the media, uh, as well as some of the other folks. But a lot of our listeners have actually wanted to get the plant-based perspective. And I couldn't think of a better person than wow. yourself. So Maybe to give some context, you do have formal training and are a practicing cardiologist. Um, what was that story around how you got interested in nutrition, especially the plant-based side? Right. And, and I'm going to declare, I mean, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have a goal of converting you or your audience to something you're not doing or don't want to do. Um, and I mean that from the heart. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a medical tool to use nutrition, and there are a few different blades to the switchblade there. Uh, certainly the biggest problem is there's no nutrition discussion with most patients by most healthcare practitioners. So it's always refreshing to discuss with people who honor the fact that, you know, diet matters. My own uh, story to get me, and I am in my 30th year of cardiology practice, I have a very busy preventive cardiology practice in Detroit. But I was born with a heart murmur, my mother got worried. I went to a pediatric cardiologist, and for the rest of my childhood, I was visiting doctors in hospitals. Nothing ever happened. But by age 10, I would have answered, I want to be a cardiologist. Just an oddity of life. We all have different influences. Uh, I grew up in a retail business family, not in a medical family. I grew up in a home where we kept kosher, didn't eat pork, didn't eat milk and meat together. Just a tradition, my grandparents, my parents. When I get, went to the University of Michigan, it was way back 1977, 43 years ago, the only option to honor that was the salad bar. And I've actually been completely plant-based for 43 years. It was another oddity. It was my upbringing. It was the university. Ann Arbor was a very friendly place to be vegetarian and vegan, even in the late 70s. And the last little piece is I finished cardiology training. I'm trained as an interventional cardiologist, stents, heart attacks. I've and thousands and thousands and thousands of invasive procedures. But uh, I started practice in 1990. I'm plant-based. I'm a cardiologist, but I didn't put the two together. 1990, Dr. Dean Ornish published a paper called The Lifestyle Heart Trial. Came in my mailbox, read the article, and I you know, started thinking maybe nutrition is a tool beyond balloons, beyond stents, beyond bypass. And I've always just on my own time, because it's not part of our formal training. I would be giving lectures on how to treat heart attacks and reading nutrition books on the side. About 10 years ago, I went back and got fully certified in integrative medicine. So it was nutrition plus other mind, body, heart rate variability. You know, it was 
biohacking in a university scientific setting before the word biohacking was used. Right. Like functional medicine, that class. Medicine, right. It's always root cause. I mean, that's my biggest objection to standard medicine. Here's your prescription and your surgery. What what about you as a human and what are you putting in your body and what genetics did you bring? So it makes medicine much more interesting to have this broad toolbox and perspective. It's just, I got to take an hour a patient now. I can't do it in 15 minutes. There's just too much to ask and learn about it. Uh, you know, and nutrition, sadly, I mean, I know you're not directly in the medical world, you know, a zillion things about it. But, you know, the odds that a patient will have a discussion with a healthcare provider about nutrition is still maybe Zero. one in five, one in yeah. interactions and just wrong. You know, it's it's not the cause of everything, but it's the cause of a lot of it. Yeah, I think that's interesting to hear that journey, especially, you know, from me coming from a computer science background, hearing a little bit about the systems approach that you're considering from an integrative or functional perspective. The analogy I like to think about is that nutrition, the input or the information or the signal that we receive through our digestive tract is like a very powerful signal, right? Like our exercise, our environment, or all other signals into our body or our system. But one of the most routine things is the types of signals that we expose our digestive tract through our through our diet. So it makes sense that something that we do all the time ends up being a large proportion of what leads to potential chronic disease or acute diseases down the line. It just kind of makes sense from a systems or computer science perspective. I agree. And, you know, it's not a background I have, uh, but I do see um, you know, some of your colleagues on Twitter that come from the engineering world. Uh, yeah. Feldman, for example, the great yeah. cholesterol experimenter, you know, without an engineering background, he wouldn't be asking those questions. So it's good. Uh, it's I don't know of a plant-based physician, nutrition scientist with the same overlap. So, uh, you know, maybe we can add some of that too. Perhaps before, not necessarily posing this as like a meat, plant or, or macros debate, what do you think are consensus foundational things that you would say all reasonable science evidence-based people would agree upon? And then let's build up an infrastructure and see where there might be some diverging opinions or paths or interpretations. Yeah, fair enough question. And, you know, I'm not sure all is possible, but, you know, vast majority. And yeah, um, and these aren't going to be shocking statements. I want to keep your viewers from falling asleep here. But, you know, the, the rise of big food in the last 60, 70, 80 years, the rise of fast food restaurants and processed food, the fact that nobody knows how to cook anymore, although COVID-19 has brought a little of that back at home. Uh, you know, the fact that we've outsourced our nutrition to Kraft and General Mills and uh, other providers, even, you know, some of the big food companies like Tyson and uh, Smithfield, you know, just literally giving up on quality, giving up on, uh, you know, purity. So I think, you know, vast majority would agree that fast food restaurants, vending machines, um, you know, are exposing us to the worst possible combination for our, our, our gut and microbiome and the impact that has throughout our body. Uh, and it's not just refined food of poor quality, it's hormones, pesticides, antibiotics. You know, it's exposure to the plastics and the wrapping around the sandwich and eating BPA for lunch is probably not a real good habit. It's just a whole economy of food. And I mean, the last statistic I heard on it was in the range of 60% of calories in America are hyper-refined, poor quality, high calorie, low nutrition, where we need to flip that ratio to high nutrition and at least reasonable calories to uh, to battle the 
uh, you know, obesity epidemic that's happening. And, you know, amongst that is sugar sweetened beverages, which are not even food, but, and I don't know, you call them refined, I guess the cane sugar became refined, but, you know, that, that just enormous. I mean, we could perhaps argue, is sugar always bad or is it the dose is the poison concept and Americans have just escalated the average amount of sugar, whether they did it willingly or they did it because it's hidden in so many foods. So, um, uh, you know, there are statistics that the amount of cheese in America has skyrocketed and we can, you know, look to our government and, you know, the beef checkoff program and some of the dairy programs that it's not based on sound nutrition. It's based on economies and farmers and, uh, the rest, um, uh, you know, it, it, it is beef is meat always bad. Now that's not, that's not at the top of the conversation we're having is this high reliance on processed food, sugar, sweetened beverages, uh, the devil. And that's where I think we always can unify. Yeah. Really, I agree. And, I, yeah. and I was just going to say that in addition to the agricultural subsidies, I mean, I think one of the biggest subsidized crop is corn. And that's why I see, especially in America, a lot of corn syrups in terms of where that glucose, where that carbohydrate comes from, which, and I think reflecting on one of the points you mentioned, I would say that I'm more moderate on the sugar question because I would say that a lot of our audience members or listeners are low carb, keto, light friendly, but also a lot of our audience members or listeners are performance athletes and sugar as a tool for optimal performance is, couldn't be a quite a powerful nutrition tool. So I'm curious to unpack that sugar statement. Um, How do you think about sugar? Um, whether from a performance perspective or just general uh, perspective. Right. And I, I'll declare that my practice is not packed with high performance athletes. It's, I'm a guy that works out every day, but I'm not going to be found, you know, setting a new world record, uh, nor do most of my patients. Yeah. You know, you have to know the data. And yeah, is it, um, is it bad to be on a hundred mile bike ride and grab some dates out of your back of your shirt and pop them in for, kind of a, a natural source of date sugar and a, and a uh, maintaining your glucose. No, I mean, a lot of world-class athletes do that and do well with that. Uh, I don't think anybody would object to that in that setting uh, and for that benefit. But I mean, in the cardiovascular world, let's go You know, back to the big debate, is heart disease driven by a high saturated fat content? Is heart disease driven by high sugar content? And other factors, the old Keys, Yudkin, you know, ugly debate that's been told properly, been told, uh, twisted, whatever. Um, the cardiology community has come back to say sugar is part of the problem. And it may be meta-analyses, it may be systematic reviews, but you can't get away with the fact. And the problem there is the source of sugar being now processed, uh, sweetened beverages predominantly, and the volume. It's just the mass of sugar. And I don't know if it's directly, because I've never seen data ever about, you know, sugar directly causing atherosclerotic plaque. It probably drives inflammation and it probably does that through weight, through visceral fat, through you know non-alcoholic fatty liver and creating inflammation. Inflammation is that driving force. But we all will agree. I mean, I honor people who take a no sugar approach and some of them it's a brain issue and it's just the sugar addiction gives them no room other than complete absence of sugar. Go for it. It clearly is an addictive food in and certain people, and maybe in all of us to a degree. Uh, but certainly low sugar is the only answer uh, for health, uh, whether it's for cancer prevention, whether it's for heart disease prevention, whether it's for weight management. But I agree, a high-performance athlete 
it's a little different deal. I mean, I wouldn't suggest you grab a donut. We can talk about, you know, some of these foods and what it does on the microbiome and lipopolysaccharide and the toxin release and how that might, you know, diminish optimal performance. But um, yeah, I agree with you. I'm a little more moderate on sugar. I mean, you're not going to find sugar bowls in my house, but you'll find fruits and dates and, you know, rare, rare exception, you know, there's something in baking, a lot of fruit. Yeah. So actually speaking about the cardiology world, there was that American College of Cardiology paper that just was published or just was accepted for publication about a week ago. Yeah. Uh, senior author Krauss talking about the saturated fat limit. And let's maybe unpack that now where traditionally in cardiology, saturated fat was a scary kind of you wanted to eliminate uh, limit intake, potentially rotate that to unsaturated fat intake to replace saturated fat intake. That publication proposed saying, hey, we should remove that limit. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah. What is your perspective? Let's unpack that story here. Yeah. And I'm going to, if you'll give me about four minutes, let me tell a story because you said it might be interesting to have a plant perspective on some of these issues. And uh, it's an area I'm up on. And let me tell the story. So um, the, the rise in heart attack after World War II as a significant health problem in America was recognized by about 1948, 1949. Minneapolis, my God, the number of heart attacks and executives was skyrocketing. Might be that people were coming back from the war smoking cigarettes. They didn't smoke before. They were free. Might be that mom didn't cook anymore. She had a job and people were relying on restaurants, whatever it was. A lot of funding, a lot of research, Framingham study and others. Can we unpack why heart attacks occur? Because the word risk factor wasn't even used yet. It was introduced in the early 1950s by Harvard professor Paul Dudley White. You know, the initial conversation was dietary fat drives heart disease. And you can credit to some degree the six country study, which was a hypothesis by Ansel Keys. It quickly refined to the question of saturated fat. And it led to the seven country study, which showed in an epidemiologic sense, higher saturated fat region by region, higher coronary heart disease rates, higher cholesterol rates. That was confirmed in metabolic studies. There's 360 metabolic studies, higher dietary saturated fat, higher blood cholesterol uh, done in their most careful circumstances. There's a famous equation called the Keyes equation, higher percentage of calories, saturated fat, higher blood cholesterol. So and for clarity, and these are associational observational well, studies the, the or were they? Metabolic studies were interventional studies and controlled okay. eight week studies. You know, they're hard to do, but there's over 350 of them that when you, you know, do a meta-analysis of these individual prospective studies in a metabolic ward, um, which led the American Heart Association to recommend in 1971, very importantly, limit your saturated fat. They also clearly said limit your sugar. There's this famous pretty graph. They got it back then. It wasn't the only potential risk for developing atherosclerosis. It was one of the risks, but saturated fat sugar. Now I'm gonna tell a story your listeners may not like, but I'm gonna tell it. In 2008, the international dairy community met in Mexico City. How do I know that? Because their notes are published, they're on the web. Their conclusion was we're losing the battle to things like soy milk. We need to find receptive researchers and academics and publicists that will talk about the health benefits of dairy as an example. That was 2008. 2010, a paper was published. It was the Siri Torino meta-analysis, saturated fat cardiovascular disease. It concluded 
lead author, Patty Serotrino, that they could not confirm the relationship between dietary saturated fat and cardiovascular disease. Who was the senior author? Ronald Krauss, MD, Oakland, California. What did Ronald Krauss disclose in that paper? He was funded by the dairy industry. I don't know if that meeting and Ronald Krauss were a marriage. One can wonder. I didn't write that or make that up. That's uh, things that have been published before. 2014, the Chowdhury meta-analysis, Annals of Internal Medicine, we could not confirm if saturated fat and cardiovascular disease uh, are related. That was a paper. Both papers were highly criticized, but they remained in the literature. They weren't retracted. There was Time Magazine saying, eat butter. Butter is back. Now, that's not what the papers said out of respect for the groups of authors that wrote both papers. They didn't say add saturated fat, but they questioned the relationship. Time Magazine distorted it. We can question whether Nina Teichel's book in 2014 that did suggest adding more butter, meat, and cheese would be a benefit to human health. But at any rate, it was a free-for-all, and many of us have felt the confusion that followed in the last 10 years has led the general public, not your audience, hyper-smart, hyper-health-focused people, but the general public to say, if people can't agree, I'll just go to McDonald's and spend you know five bucks on a meal and not worry about it. What I find is interesting, now I'm done, is four weeks ago, the Cochrane database, and many people feel with the grade system of evaluating studies, a high quality, pretty free of bias organization, published a systematic review and meta-analysis, lowering saturated fat in the diet, lowers your risk of cardiovascular disease by 21%, and if you lower it further, you will lower the risk further. It was definitive study, picked up by not one media channel. I just happened to be browsing PubMed.gov four weeks ago. I ended up writing a couple blogs and a couple of videos about it because I thought it was pretty important that this well-revered group had concluded that. And then this new paper with Ronald Krauss as a senior author. The issue I have with the new paper, I don't have the epidemiologic and statistical ability to say, man, they left out these 10 studies, they included these 10 studies. I'm sure somebody will do that but eight of the 12 authors are funded by beef and dairy. And that doesn't imply that they have no ability to separate their funding from their research. It is worthy of pointing out because it's eight of 12, and then the ninth was Salim Youssef, who has, from Hamilton, Ontario, certainly declared with the Pure study his viewpoint and perhaps bias about uh, all of this. So um, it needs to be digested. It's about food, so we've got to digest it. But as a cardiologist, if you're going to maintain a high saturated fat diet, hopefully through the cleanest versions of wild, you know, game and, you know, line caught fish and the rest. At least check your numbers if you're changing your diet. You know, what did it do six weeks later to your lipids, to your C-reactive protein, to your insulin sensitivity? All these can be measured either by biohacking or working with a healthcare professional. Um, there is the potential, it's called hyperabsorbers, you add more saturated fat in the diet and your cholesterol goes bonkers. It's maybe 30% of people, but I, I wouldn't suggest you take the risk. And it might not be the right choice if you're a hyperabsorber and your numbers go off the wall. Right. Yeah, I think that's very, very fair. And I want to unpack and reflect on what you just stated there in two sections. I think the first part is just the conflict of interest of research today. I think it's like an interesting micro discussion yeah. uh, to talk about. And then I want to talk about saturated fat, LDL, HDL, triglycerides, and unpacking that that 
that triad and, and, and how different intakes of types of saturated fat might impact um, how these biomarkers evolve over time. But speaking on conflicts of interest, it to me, I think as I've worked directly with researchers, talked with folks like yourself who observe researchers or doing research, but not working with them directly and just reading the literature, I think I'm resigned to the fact that everyone is human and everyone does have a bias. So for me, it's not a disqualifier if people declare, hey, these are some funding sources and perhaps prejudice, as long as like the raw data is presented and accessible. Um, for example, like for myself, like obviously just through my conversations and through our company, there's probably some bias even from that perspective right. of, of where I may be or may not be leaning. Um, but I, maybe this is the I, I, idealist in me in terms of what science is. It's less ad hominem and just more like, okay, every human is going to have some bias. Let's try to then just like move the conversation to the actual data collected and stick to the core scientific method, which is hypothesis, run experiments to test against a hypothesis and update our hypothesis as we see new new evidence. But I'm just curious to get your thoughts. Like, are we ever going to resolve the, uh, the bias question? Because I think just as devil's advocates, there's going to, you know, uh, like just as there's researchers with meat or dairy funding, there's just as many researchers with plant or soy and, and that kind of funding and that kind of critique. So to me, it kind of just washes out. Right. You know, um, I, I agree with everything you said, except maybe the last sentence. Uh, there isn't really much funding from broccoli and avocado. I, with the exception, the olive oil producers do some good research funding. The um, walnut producers, almond producers have a pretty active uh, group that funds some research. And I do the same thing when I read a paper that says walnut intake improves endothelial function in diabetics. You have to go to the end of the paper and at least consider, uh, you know, because bought research does exist. And um, I do think, though, there's very good people that just have funding and you have to accept that that is, uh, that is what drives research. Otherwise, the study simply wouldn't be done. They're expensive and it takes staff. Um, uh, you know, the most of my peers that have chosen to follow a largely or completely plant-based diet would tell you it's not a bias. It's an analysis of the data. It's a personal decision and something that they've chosen to use as a tool either just for their own health or for their practice. Uh, you know, I have, a, I have a conflict. I own a 20-seat plant-based restaurant in Detroit that loses money every month. I'm not as good at that part of business as you are. I have a great practice. Uh, you know, so I've got skin in the game, but this conversation won't move anybody to eat a lentil burger today. So I think I'm pretty free of that because there's no other funding. It's just, it's built on, as I said, this almost lifelong uh, uh, exposure to the research, the community, and now 30 years of treating patients with nutrition of one kind or another. Um, you know, I want to give a shout out because it's challenging to study nutrition science. And I think one of the best constructs out there, again, quick little story. Um, I met Walter Longo. I know you know who he is, of course. I uh, did a great international conference on fasting about two years ago, and I hope he'll do it again next year uh, if, if we can all get together again in LA. The uh, chief of the Biogerontology Research Institute at the Keck School of Medicine in uh, USC. USC. 
uh, you know, esteemed researcher, worked with Roy Walford, the biosphere kind of foundational uh, physician that uh, studied fasting at the very beginning in a basic science in human. Uh, and uh, he created a construct he calls the five pillars of nutritional science, admitting it's tough stuff. But what is the biochemistry? What is he calls it uh, juventology? But the biochemistry of aging, say about a topic, could be saturated fat, could be whole grains, could be, you know, dairy, whatever you pick. What are the randomized studies show, which are going to be limited in every setting? What are the epidemiologic studies show? That's a third pillar. What do centenarians studies show? What do typical elderly societies, you have to carefully research if they're authentic or bogus. The women that ate Dan and yogurt in Russia were claimed to be long lived and it was a bunch of botched birth and death records. And finally, he calls it big complex systems, talking about the environment and the overview. And you know, when you, when you look at a topic, you don't always have data on all five pillars, but it's a construct to actually try and evaluate it all and just of last interest, um, I trained in cardiology in Dallas, Texas at a time that two physicians won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for LDL receptor research, Michael Brown and Joe Goldstein. And I was listening to a lecture by Michael Brown uh, recorded a couple of years ago. He used exactly the same construct to talk about analyzing the role of LDL cholesterol in developing atherosclerosis. But Longo and Brown have never met each other. In fact, they sent each other the talks to show well, I guess uber bright people look at the whole you know, spectrum. So that's why when you talk about this recent study, Ronald Krauss, it's a piece of the entire literature, but to say it defined a new uh, you know, level of understanding is a little bit bold when you go back. Saturated fat can decrease the concentration of LDL receptors on your liver. And if you have cholesterol in your blood and there is no LDL receptor, you're going to maintain a high cholesterol level. And that's the basic science pillar of why if you strive to maintain a more normal cholesterol, considering your saturated fat intake may be a value. Now, it's not as simple as that, but that is that it closes that loop. Yeah, I mean, I would just say in general, in science, there's very rarely a seminal work that closes debate. I mean, that is not very scientific to say, hey, I have the final theory. Yeah. This this field is done. I am the genius that solved it, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Einstein yeah. is getting yeah. revolutionized by quantum mechanics. I mean, it's just the progression of science. And, you know, we, just, we also can't be nihilistic about it. That's the right word. Uh, because you do have to make decisions and recommendations yep. and come up with society guidelines. You know, the PREDIMED study, the study of 7,400 people in Spain, 2013, that tried to randomize into a lower fat diet, a higher fat with olive oil, a higher fat with nuts. You know, it had to be retracted. It was considered that seminal study, and we all got very excited about it. But it turned out it was so difficult to randomize people. The idea was, here's one house. That person's on this diet, that person's on diet B, that person's on diet C. The research team found it so difficult, they took an entire town and said, you're all on, you know, there was no randomization. It was, it was, you know, survival of the fittest in terms of getting the study done. And it got retracted, it got republished, and it maintains most of the same, you know, observations. But, um, you know, it's just, it's a tough to do it. Yeah. And then in terms of last thing I want to bring up in terms of yeah. potential conflicts is it doesn't necessarily have to be financial conflicts. I think one of the interesting observations from history is that there's some also like an interesting religious component, right? With the Seventh-day Adventists yeah. talking about and preaching about uh, plant-based diets and that potentially 
shading some of the research into that world. So, um, to, to, so again, to me, it's there, humans are complicated and I don't think there are just pure academics and pure business people and pure consumers. We're all some sort of amalgamation of all of these things like personal ethics, personal morality, what we believe from how we interpret science, how we interpret data, and then how we make a livelihood. And to me, it's how do we, how do we like, I I guess honor and understand and empathize that we're all humans with complex different hats on that we wear at any given moment, but try to focus on the data, try to focus on the science and and make progress. I think you're exactly right. We can't be nihilist about it. Um, I will just say one thing that just struck me when you bring up the Adventist is in their publications, 50% 50% of, you know, some of their publications involve 100,000 seven-day evidence. It's pretty big. And their databases, their questionnaire, their food frequency questionnaire is enormous and repeated every four years. One of the better examples of a difficult, you know, study design food frequency questionnaires. But 50% of the Adventists completely ignore the church guidelines on diet. So their published data, if you look at it from a religious perspective, how effective are they to get the rank and file to follow, you know, uh, the prescribed biblical approach from Genesis one twenty nine, they're not much better than the rest of us getting anybody to do anything with diet. Right. Yeah, and that's actually an interesting fact I didn't realize that, which also would perhaps have some confounding factor around the top fifty percent compliant people are just probably, you know, more yeah. of something, which might impact the end results anyways. Um, and then moving off from that topic, I want to unpack kind of the latest understanding from your perspective as a cardiologist around the, I would say like the classic triad of LDL and then within LDL, the small dense particles versus right. large fluffy LDL, uh, typically known as bad LDL. But I think that's not really a good taxonomy. I think we should probably evolve our understanding to move away from good or bad. I mean, these are just like metabolites that are just naturally just doing their job okay. uh you have hdl and then you have triglycerides and then i think you have this interesting other dimension so you have like the blood lipids and then you have other dimension around insulin resistance glycation blood sugar that makes this a much more i would say of a, of a nuanced story than hey do one intervention you expect this result and it reduces risk in a such a linear fashion right. at least it seems a little bit more complicated to me um how do you uh, bring in some of these other variables as you, again, un- un- unpack this from a nutrition diet perspective. Well, I, I'll say just a couple quick thoughts. One, I've ordered 10,000 plus advanced lipid panels, advanced cardiometabolic panels on insulin resistance. However, 95% of primary care docs, internists, healthcare providers have never ordered, and it's not a criticism because it's actually not recommended and sometimes not paid by insurers something called the U.S. Preventive Task Force says, order standard lipid profile. So the majority of physicians, this conversation, your listeners get it, the standard medical world would have no clue to what we're about to talk about. Uh, Maybe we can upgrade, maybe we can advance, but um, some of the best primary care docs in Detroit that I rely on repeatedly for patient care have never shown me anything other than standard lipid profile. So this is a, um, you know, an advanced conversation. But, you know, based on when, when, you know, NMR spectroscopy, particularly that allowed you to reliably get LDL particle number, particle size, HDL particle number, particle size, 
uh, became available in the last 20 years. Two big studies, one out of something called MESA, multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, and one called the offspring of Framingham study, looked at a big population with standard cholesterol, LDL, and LDL particle number. And they showed something called discordance. If you were pre-diabetic, metabolic syndrome obese, very often the LDL didn't tell the true story. Your LDL might be 110, but your LDL particle number was sky high because you have, uh, you know, your, your LDL is rich in triglycerides and small dense LDL, but the LDL particle number is high. There was a discordance. It was mainly in that metabolically impaired group of people. There's a lot of LDL concordance. The standard LDL works just as well as advanced lipid numbers. So that's one piece of the pie. Um, I use LDL particle number and routinely, it's a much harder goal to try and help people get to normal levels because it's involved in fitness, metabolism, insulin resistance, and all of the factors you mentioned. Um, uh, again, insulin resistance, I, it, there, there seems to be a debate, you know, what is the main trigger of atherosclerosis? Is it a elevated LDL particle number? Maybe weighted towards, oh, I want to go back, a small LDL particle. Is it exclusively HDL triglyceride ratios and insulin resistance, whether you do a two-hour oral glucose tolerance test, whether you look at glycation with hemoglobin A1C, um, C-peptide? Um, is it inflammation primarily, which might be driven by insulin resistance? So we get into driving HSCRP, myeloperoxidase, LPPLA2, some of these blood measures of uh, vascular inflammation that have great science. I do all these on everybody. Uh, my feeling is it's, it's all of it. It's a very complex equation that leads to atherosclerosis. I want to bring in a particle that maybe your listeners don't know as much about, but it's a big platform in my patient care, which is lipoprotein little a. And maybe your listeners do know all about it, but really pack down quick. There uh, is a form of cholesterol you inherit from your parents. It affects 90 million Americans and 1.8 billion people worldwide because it's 25% of the population based on whether you have a gene on chromosome six from one parent or both parents. For about 20 bucks in a blood test, you find out your level of lipoprotein A. Some people pronounce it lipoprotein little a because it's lowercase. And it is associated with a two to four time increased risk over your lifespan, heart attack, stroke, vascular disease, and aortic valve stenosis, uh, the most common reason of heart valve surgery. One out of every seven heart valve operations in the United States are due to lipoprotein A creating inflammation, calcification, and narrowing of your aortic valve, and it does the same thing in blood vessels. There's even a theory right now that some of the clotting in COVID-19 could be due to the genetic inheritance of lipoprotein A, which isn't only pro-atherosclerotic, it's also pro-inflammatory and pro-thrombotic. It's a badass zombie cholesterol, but it never shows up on any of these uh, profiles that we're talking about. So please add that to your assessment to date, here's a study for you, Jeff. There is no diet recognized to lower lipoprotein A. There is no prescription drug. Lipitor doesn't do it. The new injectable cholesterol drugs we've had for five years are modestly effective. And a new uh, antibody, antisense uh, oligonucleotide in research does lower it, but we need 7,000 patient trial to get finished. And it's actually just got launched this, this year. So we don't have that data yet. Um, Going back, uh, you know, 
it's probably Ronald Krauss who's done as much to publicize the idea that um, there's a particularly atherogenic LDL called small dense LDL. Um, and, uh, you know, and I respect that he's done a lot of good work uh, trying to correlate LDL particle sizes with atherosclerosis. However, the message that's often lost is even in his studies, all LDL is atherogenic. SLDLP or small LDL may be the most atherogenic, but medium-sized and even large LDLP does correlate with the development of atherosclerosis. He actually wrote a paper uh, a couple of years ago that seemed a different language for him, where he, you know, in a research paper that all LDL was atherogenic and indeed statistically small is more than large, but you would rather not have a lot of any of them. Uh, you need some, of course, but you would rather not have a lot of any of them in terms of trying to prevent the number one killer of men and women in America vascular disease. So, um, you know, when we learn that saturated fat rich foods, uh, you know, might raise, well, they might raise LDL and HDL. Um, right now, if you really drill down on HDL, high density lipoprotein cholesterol in cardiology, we have no clue on its actual function uh, because study after study shows that it's actually pro-atherosclerotic, pro-inflammatory. And all the last 50 years that said HDL was great, happy cholesterol, you know, protective cholesterol are, are now, whether it's we're got more metabolic syndrome, there is small LDL, a small HDL, large HDL. You can measure HDL particle number. That's the most accurate way right now to measure it. But, um, you know, whether it's adequate to conclude coconut oil may raise LDL and raise HDL, but it's the small LDL that's uh, that's not going up in the large LDL that is. Whether that's adequate to say it's safe for humans, I just go back to the equation, all LDL is atherogenic, and it's part of the equation to consider you know, the total. I'm not satisfied knowing I've got only large LDL and ignoring the quantity of my small LDL. It's also atherogenic, but check your lipoprotein A. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think you're just teasing into the complexity of lipids. Um, and I kind of like the, and I think Dave Feldman, as, as we referenced right in the beginning has done a lot of interesting right. unpacking around kind of an energy transport model of what these lipoproteins do, right? They're, tra they're, they're transporting fatty acids, which are hydro, phobic and, and like delivering energy in, in the form of fatty acids to our cells. But I, before talking a little bit more about that, I think the, lipo, the LP little a story is interesting. So we've talked about it briefly in the past, but I would not claim any expertise there. And it sounds like this is a good opportunity to educate our audience a little bit more on that story. It sounds like this is a inherited phenotype and there's, you can't at, at this point, we don't have any suggested intervention to, manipulate that um, so it's just kind of like it's kind of like apo uh four for potential alzheimer risk this is just apo to e2 apo e3 apo4 you you have uh, a higher risk for alzheimer's and best of luck like there's nothing we can do yeah to, to change that. You know, direct to do whether you should moderate saturated fat and alcohol yeah. and apo e4 that'd be the standard comment from a lot of right. societies you know lipoprotein a um until now, the only recommendation from things like the American Heart Association was if you're in a real high-risk family, dad, mom, uncles, aunts, grandparents, siblings, early stroke, heart attack, valve surgery, 
maybe consider checking it. Maybe you have a family you might want your kids to know. Uh, the European Society of Cardiology, which has risen to really high prominence in the last couple of years, very exciting meeting and research. They now recommend everybody get this test done once, maybe earlier in life, just to give a person at least some insight. It'd be a really bad idea to smoke if you have a high lipoprotein A. It might be a really bad idea to ignore your blood pressure and your blood sugar and not exercise if you have a really high lipoprotein A. Um, uh, and, and that's the first society that said everybody should be checked. We're talking about a $30 blood test. Um, the pharmaceutical industry is now investigating and spending uh, large amounts of money. A little company that has this uh, drug for lipoprotein A was bought for $700 million by Novartis. And so they're jazzing up the education system in America and around the world, and doctors will start to be detailed and educated and learn about it. Um, and there, you know, hopefully will be a hyper, super effective therapy because this is a real problem for people. In the meantime, there is no recognized lifestyle intervention that can do it. I mean, nobody's certainly looked at a, uh, you know, exogenous ketone-based program. Uh, there's no real reason to believe it would drop it, but it's such a big problem. It might be an interesting self-experiment for some of your uh, hackers uh, to do. Uh, niacin lowers it. Um, no society has recommended niacin routinely for lipoprotein A patients. It's what I use in my clinic because, you know, niacin will lower LDL, will change the particle size more favorably, lower triglycerides, raise HDL. You have to watch for gout, some blood sugar issues, liver issues, rash, uh, but it can lower lipoprotein A. I have patients that have an 80% reduction in lipoprotein A. And although he won't say it, the leading academic in the United States on this topic is a Professor at UCSD, Dr. Sam Tsimikas, and he'll write papers about using niacin for lipoprotein A. But, um, you know, do you check something that we don't have a dramatic therapy for? You know, that's an issue of philosophy. Um, yeah. uh, let me throw one last thing about lipoprotein A. You have a heart patient. You've got them on baby aspirin. You've got them on a statin. You've got them on a great diet. They're going to the gym. They're sleeping. Their circadian rhythm is on tack you've probably reduced the risk of the next heart event by 50, 60%. What you've left over, it's called residual risk. And it's a big issue that these people that have committed so many time and resources still have events. Lipoprotein A is the largest portion of that untreated residual risk, according to studies. So we need to spread the word. We need more effective therapies. And you know, hopefully CRISPR-9 or some gene technology will allow it to be yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting just thinking about, you know, what we've seen with exogenous ketones, ketone esters, that it does acutely drop free fatty acids, which is very, very different from lipoprotein A. But, there, you know, that, that, that is an experiment to be run. And then reflecting on drug targets or therapeutics, I seem to recall that there were targeting HDL elevation that specific marker as a drug target, but I believe those programs all failed, which seems yeah. to suggest to me that this is a, a complex systems engineering problem or systems biology problem where just hitting one specific biomarker is not solving the systematic problem, right? right. HDL, tri LDL, triglycerides seem to be very, very inter interleaved in terms of how they actually work in the body. Yeah. Although, yeah, again, very confusing right now about HDL because of 50, 60 years, just simple data, low HDL, high risk, high HDL, low risk. Yeah. And then there were intervention trials 
One did use niacin, a commercialized brand, combined with a prostaglandin inhibitor to prevent the flushing. The trial had a negative impact. More people point to the prostaglandin inhibitor as being a bad idea than the niacin, but we don't know for sure. There's something called CTEP inhibitors that can double your HDL. They didn't prove to reduce cardiovascular risk. They think raise blood pressure a bit, and that subtle rise in blood pressure may overcome any potential benefit. And then there's just finally this observation that's now at least a decade plus old, that you can find women, particularly with HDLs over 100, and they have very advanced atherosclerosis as measured by calcium CT scoring. And it's obviously, and these are women that otherwise have really good risk factor profiles, uh, as long as, long as some, along with some basic science that you can actually demonstrate pro-inflammation, pro-atherosclerotic aspects of HDL. So uh, there's very little we can do. Pomegranates activate an enzyme in HDL called peroxinase 1 and may actually make it more functional to actually do what's called reverse cholesterol transport. Uh, niacin is an option, but there's no approved therapy. Got it. So in terms of the Framingham study, that has a big observational study that a lot of people have derived understanding or proposed mechanisms. Um, I think there's been additional work to resize that data and folks are, and I think especially Dave Feldman has been looking at if or has a hypothesis that if you actually slice out um, LDL in of itself, and if you have folks that have high HDL and low triglycerides, that LDL component is non-predictive or non-correlated to cardiovascular disease risk. I, Do you I believe, buy that? Do you I see that? You, yeah. I believe you've said that right. I mean, in terms of his reanalysis, as well as uh, you know, some of the actual data published by the Framingham investigators. I mean, yeah. first publication was 1961, and they're still publishing. The you know point I want your listeners to know, your listeners got to go to a doctor every once in a while. That is what cardiologists are using across the United States. They're still going online and calculating Framingham risk scores to estimate your risk. They're not looking at HDL triglyceride ratios. Uh, you know, they're not looking at any other biomarker of insulin resistance. So, uh, it's still, um, you know, we, we don't have the Feldman equation that every cardiologist has on their smartphone to reevaluate it. But, you know, I think he's done some real good work. Before we continue my conversation with Dr. Joel Kahn, I need to make an important product announcement. HMN is launching a brand new flavor to our Keto Collagen Plus and our MCT oil powder products. And that new flavor is hazelnut. And it's actually one of my personal favorite flavors. Think of it as kind of like a Nutella crossed with a milkshake. And that's what you get when you have our hazelnut flavored Keto Collagen or MCT in your favorite smoothie drink coffee. Super clean label, nothing that's in that you don't understand. And of course, keto compliant. Check out the new products at hvmn.com slash pod. Let me know what you think. And now back to our program. Maybe to switch topics here in terms of maybe personal preference or, or thinking here. So you've obviously chosen a lifestyle being plant-based. So what is the kind of uh, Dr. Joel Kahn perspective on meat? I mean, I think it sounds like from our conversation, it's not necessarily... Uh, proselytizing or dogmatic about no. it. I'm curious, like how you're, how, how, how does one, 
I'm sure you have patients that are not plant-based. Yeah. Of you know, what is, what is your thinking around uh, meat then? Is it just uniformly bad? I, like good I, enough in small doses, potentially fine, depending on your lifestyle. Yeah. Hold that comment. Um, uh, yeah, I'll take all ethical questions out. We'll leave it for, with one exception, but you know, I'm not going to go there. That Those are considerations, but I'm not going to go there. Um, with the exception of saying, you know, uh, and anybody can challenge me if I'm off a little bit, but about 95% of the meat eaten by Americans are CAFO derived. And probably your listeners, but I don't think exclusively, are, you know, choosing what may be better, healthier cuts. There's no doubt, and studies are done, you find, you know, wild elk and kangaroos in Australia, their saturated fat content of their meat may be extremely low, very lean. Where I'm in Michigan, there's a lot of deer hunting. You know, uh, typical wild venison is extremely low saturated fat uh, source of meat. But that's not what 95% of Americans are eating. They're eating, you know, corn fed, antibiotic hormone, herbicide, pesticide, um, you know, garbage uh, or potential garbage. But that's the reality when we talk about, you know, any conversation. Are we talking animal protein, plant protein, refined carbs, complex carbs? meat, I think we need to, you know, CAFO and, uh, you know, better quality. Um, the issues, uh, you know, with meat, you know, ethics, environment aside, just pure health, is certainly a lot of epidemiology. So let's talk processed meat, of course. Um, I don't know, you know, how many of your listeners still eat a sizable amount of bacon, hot dogs, pepperoni, salami, but there's at least, uh, you know, repeated, 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 research studies, and many of them may be nutritional epidemiology, but not all of them. Some are basic science, uh, suggesting that they should be limited in terms of colorectal cancer risk, associations with Alzheimer's, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Congestive heart failure in bacon, these are relationships. Of course, they're fraught with all the difficulties of these studies, but they're repeated, repeated, repeated. You get to just meet in general, and you know there are epidemiologic associations uh, Correlating increased meat, probably saturated fat, probably LDL cholesterol and heart disease. There are a couple other interesting, you know, conversations. There is a uh, compound, or yeah, call it a compound in meat, called NU5GC. I don't know if that's been discussed in your show. Easily, NEU5GC. Um, there are two kinds of this um, complex carbohydrate protein moiety. There's one called NU5AC and NU5GC. Well, it turns out humans. Um, have NU5AC, and the meat of cows has NU5GC. It's this complex uh, moiety that's got to be in meat. It's just part of the component. Um, it's been a conversation if humans react poorly to NU5GC in animal meats because we don't have it, so it's viewed by our immune system as foreign. And just in the last 12 to 24 months, there's been some very interesting basic and now clinical science that we may have the ability to react immunologically to new 5GC, it's cross-reacts with, of all things, our blood vessels. So there is now some interesting and disturbing data that eating meat creates vascular inflammation. There's actually a word for it. It's called xenocellitis, uh, external sialic acid intake, which is new 5GC is called the sialic acid, results in vascular inflammation. It's not the end of the story, but from a scientific standpoint, it's part of the story, it appears. There's the very hot TMAO story, is the L-carnitine, which it doesn't matter if you're eating 
grass-fed or grass-finished or grain-fed or wild, uh, you know, meats, but the L-carnitine converted through our, uh, uh, I think they're called citrate lyases in the brush border, the GI tract, TMA converted by the liver by FMO to TMAO, on a basic level seems to promote atherosclerosis, causes HDL to be dysfunctional, uh, causes macrophages to accumulate, and in clinical studies correlates with kidney disease, uh, poor outcomes, and uh, heart disease. You know, uh, I know the argument that, well, some fish, not all fish, deep water fish have TMAO because it's a buoyancy system and aren't all fish healthy, and I'm not willing to concede. We clearly, even though fish show up on the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet and other conventionally accepted diets that are healthier examples, uh, I'm not sure we absolutely know that that's a resolved question. I think simply we need more work to be done on TMAO. Certainly the Researchers at the Cleveland Clinic, Stanley Hayes and MD, and the others that are the founders of 10 years now of TMAO research, are pursuing a pharmacologic agent that will block TMAO production in the gut. It's called dimethylbutane. And until we have some more data, you know, I, I, I'm quite sure there'll be pushback for saying uh, we absolutely are certain TMAO is a risk factor and eating meat you know, raises that. There are, you know, there are studies about meat and insulin sensitivity and resistance, meat and C-reactive protein. Is that quality or is that innately, um, you know, meat itself? Uh, you know, all these research studies, with rare exception, have been done with CAFO meat. And maybe it isn't as likely that you're going to get insulin resistance and inflammation from eating better cuts. But, uh, you know. Is it wise for cardiology patients to consider, you know, making meat as Mark Hyman and others call it a condiment, a condiment, a, you know, a, a kind of a traditional use where there's some in your soup, but it's not 16 ounce porthouse on your plate. Um, you know, I think that's wise uh, for sure. Yeah, there's a lot to uh, dive into and there's a bunch of little rat holes that we can we can we can explore yeah. here. Um and in terms of TMAO, I, I actually agree with you. I think the fish story in terms of there's some fishes that have like 40x amount of TMAO compared to meat. And right. therefore, because a lot of cardiologists say, hey, fish is good, but red meat is bad. That's like the end of the story. I don't think that's like a very strong argument. I think a stronger argument about the complexity of the TMAO story is more on the conversion from carnitine choline into TMAO that seems to be regulated through FMO3. In the, which, liver, right. in, in the liver, which seems to be uh, mediated through insulin. Right. So I think the story there is like, is the TMAO a reflection from the precursors from the meat? Or is it because there's insulin resistance that upregulates that conversion? That seems to be the, the root cause. So it's again, now shifting the blame from meat to sugar. Um, that seems to be a more compelling mechanism to me. Ask your audience that's biohacking and have, you know, pretty awesome insulin sensitivity. You can go to Quest Lab and get your TMAO done. Yep. Uh, it's very inexpensive. I've drawn thousands of TMAO levels. It's been clinically available for about six years now. I mean, that is totally uncharted territory. If, you know, a hyper-performing group like many that you follow, even your athletes who eat a lot of red meat and maybe egg yolk, have no TMAO in their blood. That would be fascinating to learn. A very easily testable hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a, a good research question for folks who are looking for like a PhD thesis. Yeah. That's actually a good, interesting question. I agree completely. Yeah. And then in terms of um, 
the epidemiology, I think, again, I think just hearing both sides or just the counter arguments here, I think I, I have to just bring up like the counter argument where in a lot of these contexts where people are eating hot dogs, pepperoni, I mean, the hot dog is in a bun and you're probably drinking a beer or a Coca-Cola with it right. or the pizza, the pepperoni is on a pizza. So is the epidemiology picking up the carbs in the pizza or are you really picking up the processed hot dog or the pepperoni? Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's just literally like hard to answer because it's unresolved in that kind of s- construct. Uh, if there are randomized controlled trials that are interventionally dosing like pepperoni stacks versus, I don't know, a, a, a wild elk. That could be interesting. Right. Um, again, I don't think that research has been done, but I do want to just at least throw out the counter argument to the epidemiology story. Right. And that's what I said. I just go back, go back to Longo's five pillars and, you know, nitrosamines and basic science with colorectal cell proliferation. I mean, it gives a little more weight to the idea and, you know, how many people 102 years old are slugging down pepperoni and bacon? There are, and they make the headlines, but not if you travel to Okinawa and Sardinia and Icaros. They eat meat, but it's a whole different, you know, it's much more paleolithic in its natural origin in wild parts of Italy and Greece, uh, and probably a much higher quality than we're eating in America. Yeah. And then one of the components I thought was interesting was this notion of autoimmunity. It sounds like in... I guess ruminants are just, there's NEU3, AG3, that's different from what's in humans. Um, and it, it seems like there to be an interesting hypothesis that a lot of carnivores will say about polyphenols are not natural in humans and they might trigger an immune response or lectins are triggering yeah. an immune response. And to me, just kind of, again, fairly agnostic um, on this topic. The thing that I observed that it seems like there's more and more people that have autoimmune reactions to food. Yeah. Because I think for me, I eat a lot of plants. I eat meat. I don't seem to have any autoimmune issues with either. But definitely, it just seems to be more people that are claiming, again, anecdotal, maybe psychosomatic, that they are reducing autoimmune response when they cut out certain types of vegetables. And I imagine we can find equally amount of anecdotes that have a similar story with you know, red meat. I have a friend who is a carnivore, but he has an allergic reaction to red meat. So all he does, well, you is know, pork. you know about that. So let me just, uh, just because these are high level conversations. Yeah. The interesting thing about new five GC yeah. may distinguish it from polyphenols, and I agree, anti nutrients and you know, and the whole lectin uh, story is that the antibody that's re- reacting. Unfortunately, there is new five AC in the wall of blood vessels. So it's not a general and non-specific cross-reactivity. It's unfortunately this research data that it will primarily damage your blood vessels. Where uh, you know polyphenols and hormetic agents, you know, from plant-based sources may cause a reaction, but I'm not aware of any that specifically have you know a target of blood vessel damage. So it just needs to be studied more. Yeah, I you think know, that's the, fair. I mean, a lot of these polyphenols the are very dirty targets. Yeah, you know, the red meat allergy, it's like every vegan's dream, you know, <laughs> for humor. But, you know, it's the lone star tick, which bites a person. And of all the things, there's a carbohydrate moiety uh, in red meat that, again, uh, has an allergic reaction to the response to being bit by a lone star tick. Um, and it's a very specific antibody to meat. And 
in Virginia, University of Virginia, Charlottesville, did a study two years ago, 150 people in the heart cath lab getting an angiogram. They measured the blood level of this antibody to this specific moiety. It's a carbohydrate in meat. 24% of a random population in Virginia, which is the Lone Star Tick Center of America, although it's now in about 25 states. And the degree of atherosclerosis you had correlated with the level of your antibody to this uh, tick and meat interaction. So there are people that get anaphylactic from eating meat. And like you said, who ever heard of that 10 years ago? And where'd this tick come from? But it's now gotten all the way to Texas. So the Lone Star Tick is in the Lone Star Tate state. I actually haven't seen anything brand new on this topic in about a year, but I'm told in allergy clinics, uh, this reaction uh, is actually pretty well known and yeah. not unfrequent. I don't wish anybody harm, uh, but, uh, you know, your friend is having an authentic and well-described, you know, uh, physiologic reaction. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I believe that is actually the story. I don't want to call, you know, my friend Brian out on, 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 on air, but I believe it was a tick. He used to eat meat. He can't eat and he loves meat. He can't eat yeah. ruminant or, or, or red meat anymore. And so he's like been heavily pork based now and, wow. and fish based. No. It's not in poultry. It's not in fish and it's not in pork. Yeah. So it's, so I think to me, do you, is there seeming to be a rise of autoimmune responses to food in general? Because I think from like a ancestral perspective, right. we likely ate everything. We were somewhat scavenger. We were pr probably an opportunistic eaters. Um, so to me, that this rise of auto, like immune responses towards certain types of food seems to be a recent environmental phenomenon rather than something that was around 20,000 years ago when we we're all just hunter gatherers running around. And do you, you know, see that? Do you, do you think there's yeah, something happening know, in an environment that's just I have, a, I have a daughter walking around with an EpiPen at age 26 from, you know, severe nut allergy. And, you know, I didn't grow up with any kids like that. And you probably didn't either. Although I'm obviously uh, older than you. Um, I don't know the reason it's clearly real and uh, everywhere. I'll give you just two anecdotes. I mean, there's, there are people that will look to food toxins uh, independent of the actual nature of food and probably Roundup glyphosate gets the majority of that, that uh, glyphosate, a component of the product Roundup because it's glyphosate and they're called adjuvants that are mixed with the glyphosate, um, can be very toxic. It's called the shikimate pathway. You should read about it sometime. It's actually very important in polyphenol generation. But um, Roundup was approved because it was shown not to be toxic to humans because we don't have the shikimate pathway or shikimitic pathway, people call it, in human cells. We forgot we have 100 trillion you know, microbes in our gut, and they have a shikimitic pathway. So it's very disruptive, at least according to some data, to uh, be exposed and bombarded with you know, GMO, GMO, glyphosate, glyphosate. And it may... Uh, according to some data, cause gap cell junction and GI cell junction uh, injuries so that we have a wave of endotoxemia, lipopolysaccharide, and some, some food elements that shouldn't be in the blood are entering the blood without being first digested and uh, perhaps rejected from it. So that's a theory um, that, you know, is a big, big picture question and uh, one of the many problems with the way our food chain. Uh, the other one, um, oh, Again, I just want to tell you an anecdote. Uh, Dr. Longo was being interviewed on a very hip, chic podcast uh, by people that love California food. And he was asked the question, 
do you think you should put avocados in your diet? Because in his book, Longevity Diet, you're not going to find much about avocados. Who doesn't love avocados? He actually said, I'm not sure we should put avocados in our diet. The interviewer, you know, fell off the chair because that's the national food of hipsters, yeah. the avocado toast. And Longo said, just as you said, my ancestral heritage from Genoa and Southern Italy was never to include avocados in the diet. It, they weren't being grown in Italy. I'm not sure that this isn't the future new nut allergy of the next 20, 30 years. It's not an ancestral food for most people. I mean, there are certain segments where our grandparents and great grandparents ate avocados. I don't think too many hunter gatherers are eating avocados. I'm pro avocado, but I'm just pointing out who would have predicted nut allergies? There's meat allergies. There's going to be more of this happening as we've so distorted our food chain, our food uh, industry. Yeah, well said. So I think we covered the dimension of processed to unprocessed. I think we're very aligned on that front. I think we explored plant towards animal. Another way to slice this nutrition world is by macro, right? Like, like low carb, high fat, high carb, low fat, and, you know, and it's in it. It's very orthogonal, right? You can be vegan keto, for example, right. or you can be, I don't know how you could be like high carb carnivore. That's probably not possible. Not um, but uh, curiously unpack from a macro perspective, thoughts on, on, on the macro nutrient ratio perspective. Yeah. So let me just touch on vegan keto for a minute. Um, you know, when, for example, when Verda Health launched, you know, there wasn't. Now Verda Health has incorporated a vegan, low-carb, uh, keto approach uh, for those who want to do it. Um, there is a series of papers by a very prestigious scientist in Toronto, David Jenkins, MD. He created the glycemic index and the glycemic load characterization of foods. He did a series of studies called Eco Atkins. Can we take plant foods? Create a high, it's not going to be as high a fat as some of your listeners do, but 50, 60% of calories from fat, you know, whole grains being a small percentage. And he looked at cardiometabolic health and showed there was advantages over just a general plant. No, actually, it was a general vegetarian diet was his control group. So that existed in the literature. You know, Longo's long-term research project, NIH-funded, uh, called the Fasting Mimicking Diet. It's not to the extreme some of your listeners do, but 55% of calories from fat for five days of plant foods inducing ketosis is not its only mechanism, but one of the mechanisms of some uh, phenomenal research, including a breast cancer trial that got published this week. Um, you know, these little pieces exist. So from that, a lot of people now are just taking a plate of arugula, putting some nuts, putting some uh, extra virgin olive oil or avocado oil, creating very high fat, low net carb uh, weeks or months uh, of diets. There's a Facebook users group that has tens and tens of thousands of people doing vegan keto. But like a lot of these areas, there's just not a lot of other diet. We have no cardiovascular data to know what impact and very little lipid data. I mean, I've done it. I've done fasting mimicking long ago many times. I've done my own version of vegan keto for a week at a time. And you know, you drop weight, your, your little keto blow uh, tool or, you know, urine test will be positive. You can achieve it. Is it healthier to do it with, you know, what is probably higher fiber diet that's, you know, unknown, but it is available as an option. Um, macros. 
Um, some would say they're they're confusing the public. You know, we never we don't go into a restaurant and buy carbohydrate, protein, or fat. We eat food, and they have a variety. Some uh, bright, you know, people I follow, Ray Cronice. If anybody wants to look up a few papers, everybody knows David Sinclair. But David Sinclair has published with Ray Cronice, C R O N I S E, and they've written about this eliminating the macro language. Uh, let's talk about real food. Are you eating mushrooms? Are you eating meat? Are you eating you know, wheat, what are you eating? You know, it's clear the human body can adapt to all kinds of different ratios, you know, from Maasai to, you know, Okinawa and see at least some reasonable measure of health, at least enough to reproduce, which is obviously the main, you know, driving force to sustain the race. Uh, you know, the only argument would be if you want to live to 100 and not be on medication, avoid surgery, is there an optimal, optimal macro ratio? And, you know, I, I don't think that's resolved. Is methionine an aging amino acid and is a low methionine diet, which can be a low protein diet or at least a low animal protein diet an advantage? I mean, there's enough data to at least consider that a possibility uh, part-time. I'm in, I, I like cycling. I don't think you should do the exact same thing every day, every day. I mean, diversity of the microbiome, diversity of foods, and maybe diversity of your dietary patterns. Um, you know, I'm not going to go back to meat, but, uh, you know, I don't mind doing a week of vegan keto and going back to a naturally low fat, high complex carbohydrate diet, like uh, has been described by Dr. Ornish. Um, yeah. uh, you know, there are certainly are reasons to ask the question and it's not a comfortable question to ask meat eaters, but is, uh, is a higher protein diet an aging diet? And you can look at, anybody look at 2014, um, Morgan Levine, PhD, Harvard, USC, Dr. Longo, correlations that higher protein diets may uh, be associated. These are high quality studies, but they're nutritional epidemiology. There's a paper in 2016 by a researcher Song using the Harvard database, higher protein or chronic diseases. Uh, wasn't true of plant protein. It's only true of animal-based proteins. Um, I still would say if you're following a diet that's outside of the Harvard School of Public Health Healthy Eating Plate, do some blood work. You know, Find out what's happened. You know, the famous, it took a year for Sean Baker to measure his blood work. And frankly, it wasn't all that good. And he's never published any repeat blood work I know of. Not not uh, slamming on him. I like the guy and we're friends. But if you're going to do a food experiment, get some blood work. Find out what your inflammation, your insulin resistance, your lipids. You know, biomarkers aren't everything, but at least they give you a clue. And I just want to give a shout out to heart calcium scoring. And I, I'd love now later two minutes so your audience knows how valuable they are as a biohack, as a self-assessment. Um, and, you know, Sean Baker had a calcium score of zero two years ago. Great thing. Um, I'm happy for him. But if it were otherwise, it might cause you to reevaluate how this is all working for you. Right. This is the calcium artery score, right? I just, it's my cardiologist, my preventive. This is a non-food topic. Yeah. Somebody listening today is going to know somebody who dropped dead saw their doctor a week before and had no clue they were sitting on a time bomb of advanced heart disease. All you got to do is go to your local hospital with $100, have a five-second CT scan that shows your lungs, your bones, and your heart. And if your LAD is full of, your that's your widowmaker artery, your left anterior descending heart artery, is full of bone-like calcium, you have a problem. And it may not be a problem that translates to an immediate risk of heart attack, uh, death, or stroke, but you should be aware. Now, uh, conversely, 
if you go for this test and it comes back, your calcium score is zero. Uh, you're winning the genetic lifestyle environmental lottery because there is no test that dices through all these Framingham, Feldman, uh, it's called AstroCharm, all these scoring systems out there. You know, you rob banks because there's money there. You do this five-second, $100 CT scan, coronary artery calcium scan. Yep. You probably need your doctor's prescription, and you may have to challenge them a bit because they're not used to ordering it, even though it's been out there for 25 years. But, you know, you rob banks for money, and you do the CT scan because it's the only way to actually see heart arteries non-invasively at age 40, 45, 50. So that's just a little health plea to all listeners. And again, if you're experimenting in a way that's a little out of the norm, and even if you're not, if you're eating, eating a, you know, American Heart Association diet, which is probably disease promoting, you know, get checked, test not guess. Yeah, I had a conversation with Ivor Cummins, fat emperor. Yeah, he also uh, was big we're, on the stage. We're at one on this topic on Twitter all the time. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I noticed that you mentioned the methionine uh, data, which is an interesting one. And some of the literature that I looked at expanding on the methionine content, which is an amino acid, oftentimes found in muscle meats. Uh, if you have an adequate amount of glycine, which is often found in collagen and other organ meats, that uh, negative aging impact seems to be blunted. So I think that to me speaks towards even if one is going towards more of a carnivorous diet, having a balance of organ meats, not just eating filet mignon, uh, seems to be a sensible way to be incorporating. The old tail to snout approach. Yeah, no, it's a tail approach. Yeah, yeah I'll eat my asparagus. I eat tail to snout on my asparagus, baby. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 cool to explore these many facets. I know there's a, I have a friend who's also a cardiologist, Ethan Weiss. You might've seen him on Twitter. Yeah, I know. And um, he, I think is in this middle spot where I think he has appreciated a lot of the data around the low carb style of eating. But I think because of his cardiology background and training, he's still a little bit scared around the saturated fat story. So he's been kind of focused and doing work around uh, fish plant based ketogenic diet, which seems to be trying to capture the best of both worlds where you're avoiding a lot of the potential. Again, if folks are more concerned on the LDL saturated fat story, this kind of approach could be getting uh, some of the best of both worlds. I think it'd be interesting, frankly, to study the prolonged fasting mimicking diet with your uh, ketone ester liquid. I mean, you know, one of the goals of that five-day plan is to get into ketosis. It's not the only goal. It's very low sugar, very low protein, nutrient mix that uh, lowers IGF-1 for a few days. But if you can get into ketosis quicker, it's an unknown. And Dr. Longo won't test that. He's not a big fan of exogenous ketones. Uh, he's got his own research program going. But again, a very simple thing to do. Do a month of, do five days of prolon and do five days of prolon with a ketone ester. Uh, might be able to marry the technologies. Uh, you know, yeah, I, that'd be I actually thought of doing it myself, and I might because, uh, you know, I do prolon enough, and I'm a fan of what you're doing. Yeah, let's link up and talk about it. Um, I'm actually – I mean, this is a perfect segue. Let's talk about fast-mimicking diet. I mean, it sounds like you've been close with Longo, and actually, I have to give Walter Longo a lot of credit for when I started reading a lot of the fasting literature, when I started doing intermittent fasts and more extended fasts now probably five, six years ago at this time. So right. his work really – 
put me on to experiment with fasting. Yeah. Five, five, six years ago. Now at this point, um, fast making diet, um, what is it exactly? And how does it sit with fasting, straight up fasting with other calorie restricted diets and or macro restricted diets? Right. So, you know, I appreciate the fact that without studying the field, you open a box of his five-day food program and say, and I've had patients tell me this and many colleagues in the health field, it's processed food. I just rather do make my own or do it some other way. You know, Longo is the number one most funded researcher on nutrition in the United States, $50 million of NIH. Not many people can get a $10 million NIH grant on nutrition. Why? Because for 25 years, he's been cutting edge, trained with Roy Walford, the recognized father of fasting research in the United States, um, and has consistently pumped out high quality research, high quality research. What he should have done is just stuck to the basic science because he has described a lot of the intricacies of the IGF-1 pathway, mTOR pathway, pathway called PK-RAS. He's already won a secondary award from the Nobel Prize Committee called the Jubilee Award, and he may be up for the big one. There's no laughing about Walter Longo. He does own, and I'm not really defending him, I'm just throwing facts out. He owns the largest portion of the company called El Nutra, but it's entirely goes to funding his uh, cancer research program. I can tell you that he doesn't take a dollar and he's pretty much distanced from the company. But rather than just have a lot of science about fasting pathways, 10 years ago, he decided, what if I can apply this clinically? He didn't need to, but what if he could? And he started with mice and rats and went in the kitchen and he made his Italian, he made soups and he made all kinds of things, fed them to animals, leading to a whole series of research studies. If you drop calories for four days in a mouse and you make it a low sugar, low protein, high complex carbohydrate, 35% high fat diet, and he, for what reasons, I don't know, always did it without adding animal products, you can see the hippocampus grow and improve cognitive function in mice. You can see, as you know, beta cell regeneration in the pancreas, suggesting maybe one day we can regrow pancreases for type 1 diabetics. Uh, you can see that cancer cells are starved and will actually take up chemotherapy and be damaged more efficiently, whereas normal cells go into a resting mode called differential stress response, and they aren't harmed by chemotherapy. These were the animal studies. So he developed a equivalent program for humans, five days, first day is 1,100 calories in a box, next four days are 800 calories or 760 the macros are approximately 55% fat, 35% complex carbohydrates, low protein, zero sugar. It's nut bars, it's olives, it's soups, it's some um, drinks, sugar-free drinks. Um, pretty tasty stuff. There's a minestrone soup like his grandmother's, he says. And it's expensive because it was a very, there's 61 food components and it's all non-GMO, gluten-free, um, high quality stuff. Uh, but, you know, not all my patients like it. Some don't like the flavor. Some don't like olives. He did a 100-patient randomized study. Um, one group did five days of this diet. Then they went back to whatever diet they wanted to eat, five days of this diet. I know some of the participants. These are very intelligent, motivated people in L.A. They weren't going to Hardee's and Wendy's on the days they were off the diet. And at the end of three months, they had a complete evaluation compared to baseline. Stem cell production. IGF-1 levels, HSCRP, hemoglobin A1C, 
They did DEXA scan to look at visceral fat, and they published the data. There were all kinds of improvements. For the, for the control group, they were given an opportunity at the end of three months to go and do prolon fasting mimicking diet, and they also showed gains. There was more metabolic gain if you started in an unhealthy state. If you started overweight or with a high C-reactive protein, kind of makes sense if you're kind of optimized metabolism. Nobody had to be vegan, carnivore. It was, you know, it was just people that volunteered to be involved in a fairly rigorous long-term study. Subsequently, he's totally shifted gears to use a modified prolon in cancer chemotherapy support. First time nutrition has ever been used. Why is he doing any of this? His opinion is the number of people that will do a five-day water fast is very limited. And some people aren't in a situation they should do it at all based on their health and weight and metabolism. But a larger number of people might be willing to walk around for five days on 800 calories a day. That creates, in animal models, the same response, zero calories, 800 calories uh, in animal models. Uh, he started out actually doing water fasting in cancer patients, and the acceptance was so low, he abandoned it. So it's a compromise based on what he calls nutri-technology. And now, you know, nearly 100,000 people have done the fasting mimicking diet from El Nutra. I don't know how many people do water fasting and nobody's really correlating it, but we have you know, some numbers to believe we can spread this. So in a journal this week called Nature Communications, about 180 women with breast cancer in Europe getting chemotherapy were given a box. The first, three, the first day was 1,100 calories, and then it goes down to 200 calories a day. And half did it had chemotherapy with fasting, mimicking, half did it without. The results were just published this week. Side effects were the same, but the group that was the control group got steroids to control side effects. The Alnutra fasting mimicking diet didn't get the steroids, yet it suggests that maybe there was better side effect tolerance, something or ratio. But they did x-ray and pathologic evaluation of tumor shrinkage from chemotherapy. It was significantly better when you combine chemotherapy with the fasting mimicking diet. So like all of a sudden, it, you can chuckle about it. There's not olives. I mean, this may have a major impact along with the other 30 plus studies going on around the world on other disease states. Uh, it may have a major impact by combining, you know, it's, it's teaching scientists nutrition in the public. Nutrition plus standard medicine, hello, it's about time we tried. And right now, it's, you know, these are difficult studies. They take a lot of funding to, to pull off. But, you know, it should be also an impetus to do a, you know, a exogenous ketone study in some of these disease states. Of course, we have some epilepsy data. Uh, we could use some good data in some other disease states. So, I mean, that's the bottom line. No doubt, somebody who's got the resolve and the health to do a five-day water fast is probably, you know, they're going to get ketotic. They may lower their inflammation. They may lose visceral fat. I don't know that they'll know they have a stem cell boost, as was shown with the fasting mimicking diet, because that takes a very specialized lab to measure it. Um, but it's just not a big slice of the pie that's going to do that. I've never done a five-day water fast, but I can do five-day fasting mimicking diet and work all day long because there's just enough to keep me going. 100%. Were you a co-author on that uh, Nature Communications paper? I no, I've not done any. I've lectured, full disclosure, for El Nutra at a couple of medical conferences on the topic fasting and cardiovascular disease. And honestly, I wish there was more data. There's fasting and biomarker data, but actual measures of any kind of endothelial function, uh, coronary you know, measures, there's basically none there. 
there is a paper in press, to be honest, that will be the first fasting mimicking diet, cardiometabolic health randomized study. I've seen the data now that I remember it, but I wasn't an author. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think I, uh, you definitely like tweeted on it. It's like, that's definitely a very exciting result for, I mean, cancer is one of the biggest killers of people, period. Um, and then I have experienced doing multiple day water fast. The longest fast I did was a seven day water fast. And I will concede it was not fun. It's definitely a lot of discipline and effort to be able to not eat and just drink water for seven days in a row. Um, but I'm curious to get your sense in terms of a, a non-superiority. Do you believe that the mechanism that, so I, my, my perspective on this is that I believe the fast moving diet works and I believe it works through essentially what it says, mimicking a fast. So is there an argument that it's non-superior to just a straight water fast? And do you think that it's superior to in a relatively equivalent calorie restricted diet in the same macros? For example, is there something special with the food itself in the FMD product? Or if I eat 1100 calories and 700 calories for whatever kind of that range, Am I going to see an equivalent end result? So number one, if you want Dr. Walter Longo on your podcast, I can ask him. So that, you know, I'd rather you always get it straight from the man. He's so fascinating, his personal life and his research life. Uh, and uh, it's dynamic because all these studies are going on worldwide. Uh, he also yeah. has very strong opinions. So, uh, you know, you, you will uh, have to be prepared. He may not always agree and he's pleasant, but he may not always agree. Um, number two, if you created a 760 calorie diet that had the same macros, um, but wasn't those specific food items, I think you'd be getting close to the same response. You know, if you kept it, I don't think, and I'm not making fun of you, I really not, but three Snicker bars a day is not going to do it. I mean, if you had a, you know, there's a reason there's no sugar in it because you don't want to activate the pathway Longo has described called PKA RAS. There's a reason it has very low protein because you want to drop your IGF-1 for those five days. That's his brilliance, not mine. You know, the fact that there's spearmint tea, not, you know, uh, green tea, and the fact that there's uh, tomato soup, not barley soup, he actually did pick those based on years of kitchen-based science, but I actually have neither read nor have I talked to him about that. Um, uh, you know, like many things, you've got published, randomized, peer-reviewed data that shows outcomes that are beneficial. Anytime you alter it, like the common question, there's a nut bar in fasting mimicking diet box. There's not allergic people. Corporate opinion in Dr. Longo says if we change the experiment, we don't know how it's going to change you know, why not eat a flax bar of relatively equivalent calories? So based on both FDA, FTC, great care you have to take about making claims that overstate, you know, the science, they're very rigid in saying, you know, this is the magic box because we know the data and variations on the diet can't be endorsed. Um, and you can see what's come of it, this, you know, research in diabetes and autoimmune disease and, uh, um, there is a type two diabetes randomized trial that's about to embark, you know, huge issue. But, um, you know, if somebody wanted to, you know, do something similar to it and they don't have a health issue, they just wanted to copy it. I mean, it's patented and 
I can't endorse that as uh, somebody who has spoken for them. But, you know, I think you'd be pretty well off to anticipate. Yeah, you're going to lose weight. I agree with you. Any 760 calorie a day diet, you're likely to lose weight compared to eating 2,300 calories a day. But if you're measuring C-reactive protein, IGF-1, and you're doing a DEXA scan on visceral fat, I mean, in the randomized study, there was no loss in muscle mass. Lean body mass was the same, only visceral fat drop, which is a very cool you know, uh, advantage for an athlete who might adopt a fasting program. You don't want to lose your lean muscle mass. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that got me interested in fasting in the first place was the data around fasting, promoting neurogenesis, which, you know, the growth of new neurons, which probably also leads to hippocampus increase in size. Um, yeah, I think my kind of question or the skeptic or the scientist is that, is there a superiority over the specific magic combination? Um, and, you know, could you hit the similar pathways if I had just a hundred or equivalent calories of fat, which would not hit the IGF one, which not which okay. not would not hit the insulin response pathways, and maybe resolve some of the satiety questions. And, and I, I suspect, do suspect the right. answer is yes. I mean, you know, um, he does collaborate with you know uh, Sachin Panda and Dr. Varadi and people doing intermittent fasting and time restricted eating and different protocols, um, uh, but. F- as I say, from a pure scientific standpoint, having, you know, locked in a formula that has results leads to the ability to both commercialize it and to, you know, make some science-based claims. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, that was the protocol that was used that showed this result. I think that is the body of evidence. There's maybe a discussion section around what were the mechanisms of actions that drove those results. And that's a little bit more speculative, but I, I agree with you in terms of just strict causative claims this specific intervention you know did the work showed the results and like credit to that um so i think it's fair but i think just from a mechanisms perspective it's a good question to see you know this is the only intervention that can hit the same mechanisms that i think longo and team are describing and there potentially could be work done there to prove that story out. That's I mean, kind just, of- you know, the original question was about macros. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of ways to eat poorly and there are more than one way to eat well. And, you know, going back to where we started, you know, a, a, macros, but mainly of processed foods, who cares? It's all junk and, you know, you can vary it around. I mean, Okinawa traditional diet, well-published, less than 10% of calories from fat, 80% of calories complex carbs. Seem to work out pretty well for a lot of Okinawans. Crete, they love olive oil. Seem to work out really well for a lot of Cretans. Um, and all the variabilities in between. You introduce processed food and Franken food, as you know, people humorously call it. You know, you've distorted you know our natural diet, our ancestral diet completely. So, you know, a healthy whole food plant-based diet, low in fat by its design, with higher in added fat by its design. They're all healthful diets compared to what most people are eating. And you can say, of course, the same for any diet that introduces fish, poultry, chicken. Just quality, 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 and measure, measure, measure. I I don't think you should experiment uh, without at least knowing your lipids, your blood sugar, and your maybe inflammatory markers. Yeah, and I I can 100% agree with that statement. I think there's just been so much literature around the personalized reactions towards the same kind of intervention with foods. Right. Like I might respond better than you and we might have different genetic baselines and we might have different goals right. of what we want to optimize for. If I'm trying to be a bodybuilder, Olympic sprinter, 
or a power or sorry, an Iron Man champion, that might imply very, very different things. Or I'm trying to resolve breast cancer. Very, very different goals for all of us. So we've been going for almost almost two hours now. So I want to, you know, make this and, and wrap this up here. But what are you excited for for the rest of 2020? I know you're quite prolific speaking, doing research. You have your clinical practice. Um, obviously, I think a lot of people's plans were disrupted this year. Yeah. But teasing uh, around the corner, what, we, what, what does the world have in store from, from Joe Khan? For me, I again, 30 years of practicing cardiology, but it's more fun than ever. I have an international you know, practice, uh, telehealth or live in Detroit. Uh, you don't have to be committed to plant-based and no matter how much I suggest it to some, they do what they want, but you know, um, educating them. I and it's always clean diet, clean diet, clean diet, measure, measure, measure. Um, I have owned as many as three restaurants. Uh, God spoke to me, I'm down to one. It's a very challenging idea of, you know, having a physician persona and kind of like Dr. Andrew Weil uh, and all, though they've been wildly successful. Um, and so that's been interesting, but that's phasing out. I came out with a new book in March on lipoprotein A, probably a little cycle before. I do want to write one. I've never written a book on reversal of heart disease. Uh, there have been books on that topic. They're all over a decade old. I routinely see using carotid IM thickness technology, ultrasound, reversal of plaque. It's, it's not just food, it's food and lifestyle and a lot of nutraceuticals that are science-based. Uh, so I'll do that book at some point. I don't know that I'm going to travel much. Uh, you know, like basically, we've all learned how much you can do by Zoom and other platforms in place of never made sense to fly to Portland to give a 45-minute talk and get back on a plane. Yep. When now it's acceptable, even if there is a live crowd, to do it in this way. Um, married 39 years, going to maintain that. Live on a lake, going to play in that. A couple of rescue dogs. But, you know, I'm... I'm working until I'm 120 and trying to learn all the time. I mean, you know, interactions like this, uh, been diving into brain health. I mean, an important topic, obviously a good platform for your company and brain health. But Yeah, it sounds like you're staying busy, staying productive. So yeah. where do people follow in? I know you, you're on social, you have websites. Where do people tune in? Yeah, yeah, I'm on Twitter a lot at D-R-J-K-A-H-N and, you know, Instagram's all flowers and love, but I'm there all the time too. It's just funny how you post the same thing on those two sites and very <laughs> different cultures that uh, create around that. But I have a website, drjoelkahn.com, D-R-J-O-E-L-K-A-H-N.com. If I've called any of your audiences flaming assholes, I'll apologize publicly, but I don't usually <laughs> use that language on Twitter. But you know it. Uh, Frank Lipman, a lot of people know Frank Lipman, you know, Frank Lipman, MD said, you know, Twitter's where angry old men fight it out. And sometimes you feel like that, even if you're not necessarily old or a man. But uh, yeah, I can't take it too seriously. I think it's a rambunctious world out there. So right. I enjoyed this conversation. I think a lot of food for thought, pun intended for our audience to digest and, uh, and, and, and learn from. So thank you for taking the time, Dr. Khan. No, you too. Thanks for the interest. And seriously, some of these projects we talked about, you know, ketones and FMD, uh, ketones and a plant-based keto uh, program would be very interesting to follow up on. So we'll do that. 100%. Thank you. Thanks. And that wraps up a great and fun conversation with Joel. As longtime listeners know, 
I've spoken to a lot of the leading carnivore doctors in this space. You should reference Dr. Sean Baker's episode or Dr. Paul Saladino's episode. I think we dive very deep into the literature on carnivore diets. But I think it was about time that we also give the other side a platform. So I really enjoyed this nuanced, fair, open, not even really debate, but an exploration of the evidence and arguments for the plant-based side. I must say that the arguments that Joel brought up didn't really convince me to move off of my current nutrition protocols. Again, I anchor very much around intermittent fasting, reduced carbohydrate load, uh, cycle in and out of ketosis, and I do eat heavily animal-based. I think the nutrient density found in animal products, as well as the direct literature studying the interventional introduction of meat is still quite compelling to me. And I think Joel does a very good articulation of the considerations and the thoughts of a plant-based approach, and I have nothing against that. In fact, that's something that I do wanna test as a good scientist myself. Can I go attempt and be healthy and thrive off a plant-based diet, maybe a plant-based keto diet for a four to eight week block? I actually have a couple CGMs on deck and that might be a fun personal experiment to run. Please do comment, subscribe, hit the like button. All your support uh, really does help. We're always online at podcast hvmn.com or our personal uh, social channels at hvmn or at Jeffrey Wu, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-W-O-O. Stay healthy, be well, and always challenge the dogma. Talk to you all very soon.